0: offering a moment of uh, loving-kindness to Mac's wife, Suzanne, who is having a colon cancer operation in a week, so let's hold her in our heart. be healthy, may you heal, may you be strong. James sends his regards. So this is the uh, anniversary of, the 200th anniversary of the birth of Charles Darwin, and I do want to do a a little tribute, but I also first want to uh, talk about our current situation in the world, because I know that's on people's minds, and uh, you know, it's a it's a moment. It's a very uh, watershed moment, shall we say? And I know a lot. Of, there's a lot of people suffering, and a lot of pain in the land and around the world. You could say it's apocalyptic times, and the the word apocalypse is from the Greek and it means the lifting of the veil. Because it's at these times when we see clearly, when we're really forced to look, difficult times cause us to really examine our lives and what we're we're doing, how we're living. And of course, what we see behind the veil are, are the basic teachings of dharma, that the world really runs on greed, competition, and delusion about what will really bring us satisfaction. It's so clear. It's so clear now. It's a very powerful moment. Unfortunately, our our dharma lessons always come, it seems, with a lot of pain, suffering. So I'd like to offer a couple of uh, balms or ways of looking at the situation that might give us some ease, some relief. First of all, Try not to take it all too personally. You didn't cause this financial crisis. The whole world has been eagerly seeking wealth, greedily seeking wealth and trying to find the magic formula and the right stocks and the right, the right gamble. Trying to get richer Maybe even rich, so that we can live extravagantly. It's no, and it's nobody's fault. It's not your fault that you are here at this moment, in this moment of history where things turn so dra- dramatically. I think one of the one of the great teachings of this time is that we are. We are a um, collective being. We move. In a collective, and are all subject to the whims of history. I, li- I like to think of us as as Charlie Chaplin's Little Tramp, you know, the everyman figure that he played so beautifully, who is you know comes to the shores as the new immigrant and gets caught up in all the craziness and the and the confusion. Uh, or or comes to the gold rush, you know, and tries to strike it rich and, you know, fumbles and stumbles. And, or or the in modern times, literally getting caught in the gears of the machine, one of the great images in, in movie history that really says how we, we are in, in regard to our history. And usually we're like fish in the ocean that don't notice the water, but then when things like this happen... We begin to understand how we are really at the at the mercy of these larger forces, culture, history. Let alone biology, let alone evolution. So don't take it too personally. Um, another thing that might another. Uh, Perspective that might offer you some ease is the fact that uh, one of the most uh, tenacious defilements in the in the Buddhist teachings, one of the most tenacious defilements in the mind, is our tendency to compare ourselves with others. And um, as long as we have that tendency to do so, you might as well find some comparisons that are going to make you feel pretty good about your situation. So rather than compare yourself to how wealthy you were, or how wealthy you thought you were going to be, uh, your fantasies of, of who you might have been, why not compare yourself to all the people who ever lived before about the year 1900, say? or, say, the year 1920. All the people who ever lived without painkillers, without uh, uh, antibiotics, without Velcro. I mean, (laughs) how did they manage? When you think about it, most of your ancestors, just a couple generations ago, were peasants. Most of our ancestors just moments ago were peasants. And those were hard lives. When you compare it start to compare yourself, you really get a a, a, a sense that you have so much to be appreciative of for living in this moment of history. Uh, I mean if 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 you have a roof over your head and enough food to eat and you don't sleep in the same room as your farm animals, you have real reason to rejoice. But as the veil is lifted, uh, other scenarios reveal themselves and my sense, and I think there's a lot of us who feel this way My sense is that this economic crisis is exactly what we need at exactly the right time and that uh, it is a blessing in disguise because the economy and ecology have been on a collision course for a long time now. You'll notice that both ecology and economy start with the syllable eek. You know? <laughs> but anyway, I think we can be very thankful that the economy has reached a point where we have to, we have to stop consuming so much. You remember back in the 70s, there was a uh, movement called voluntary simplicity. Well, not enough people volunteered. So now, we have to have compulsory simplicity. Isn't that there was the, a, a great uh, chart that I saw in a, in a wonderful little book called Status Anxiety, written by uh, B-U-T-T-O-N. Uh, and this was a percentage of North Americans declaring the following items to be necessities. Now, in 1970, only 20% of the people thought that a second car in the family was a necessity. By the year 2000, 44% thought that a car, second car, was a necessity. I think it's four. Does anybody have uh, any glasses? Any just kind of regular, you know, magnifying? Yeah, please. I, I can't, I didn't bring mine. This percentage might go up dramatically here. <laughs> it did, it did. I, uh, second car, in 1970 it was 20% thought it was a necessity. In, ni- in 2000 it was 59% thought it was a necessity. A second television set, in 1973. percent of the people only thought it was a necessity to have a, a second television. In 2045% thought it was a necessity to have a second television. 1970 only 2% thought it was a necessity to have more than one telephone in the house. In the year 2078 78% thought it was a necessity. Car air conditioning in 1970, 11% thought it was a necessity. In the year 2065% thought it was a necessity. 1970, 22% thought home air conditioning was a necessity in the year 2000. 70% dishwasher, 8% in 1970, in the year 2000, 44%. That is what has been happening in our in our economy, in our culture, and we are destroying the planet. It's just clear that we are destroying the planet by our consumption. Uh, one, of the, one of the statistics or one of the, one of the most striking facts to me that says that is the fact that m- most biologists believe we're living now through either the fourth or fifth largest extinction spasm in biological history. Uh, that species are dying at something like, E.O. Wilson says, something like a thousand times the normal rate of extinctions. And the culprit is is our wonderful, (laughs) our genius species, and our wonderful success at learning how to manipulate the planet and its resources and support six billion of us, which is patently absurd that we have six billion people. There's a great bumper sticker now, uh I've seen a couple times. It says six billion people can't be right. <laughs> but it's really it's really becoming obvious uh that we really have to change our ways and we have to do it dramatically. And it seems like, you know, people are very reluctant to give up what has become their comforts and their habitual pleasures and uh for the sake of anything greater than their own particular lives. But now we actually we actually have a cause to and we have a reason to give up our our extravagant lifestyles, and that is for the sake of life. Um, I think you know the other species of life are really happy that this is going on. You know, they're The the last few whooping cranes are whooping it up, and, uh, and, you know, the fox is going out on the town, oh, to celebrate, you know. Yay, the human worldwide growth, industrial, technological economies are starting to slow down. They're cheering. The whole plant kingdom is breathing a sigh of relief. To them, it's a matter of life and death. So I think you can consider all of your losses as a donation. Consider it a donation to the greater cause of the continuation of life on this planet. This strange, wonderful experiment of life and evolution, consciousness. I think it's a great moment to to uh, retool our machines and reassess our reasons to live. And a lot of opportunities right now to be a bodhisattva. I have some suggestions uh, for the government, but I don't want to get in them, into them too much. Uh, But I I think, you know, Obama is uh, kind of trying to create another new deal like the Roosevelt era new deal. But I'd like to see a little bit more of a new age new deal. You know, rather than pumping up the economy again, I'd like to see a kind of inspiration for everyone to slow down and everyone to try to really do with less and not, you know, get back on this train of consumption. Uh, You know, while we retool, while we turn into turn towards a a green and more harmonious, you know, economic system, and and means of transportation and commerce. So I have, I think, first of all, he should start a department of meditation and therapy, which would set up deprogramming centers around the country. And teach hyperactive. American workers how to be less productive members of a less productive society. The government could actually pay people by the hour to work on themselves. Now that's, there's a public works project for you, you know. Um, I'd like to see a department of wisdom. I'd like to see a department of government that is staffed by historians, philosophers, anthropologists, maybe some mystics, a few jesters. People, I, I think what we really need in government is is more right brain, you know, to sort of create a real balance of powers. Because we've now we've got a totally left brain kind of, Situation in Washington, and I, you know, I, I have a whole, I have a whole routine about this. I won't do the whole routine. I'd just like to mention that, uh, in order, uh, you know, that we, we, I would really like Obama to go to the UN and announce to the world that we were would like to officially, the United States would like to officially resign as a superpower. And from now on, just be known as an ordinary happy-go-lucky nation. You know, it hasn't been that much fun to rule the world, you know. And, um, and you know, there's nothing to be ashamed of. Superpowers rise and fall at regular intervals throughout history. Just a few decades ago, the, the Brits were proud to say that the sun never sets on the British Empire. Now it's just those chilly little islands in the North Atlantic. <laughs> the sun never even rises on the British <laughs> Empire. And there's re- there's not necessarily, it's not necessarily anything we need to fear, this sort of, sort of decline. We can call it the de- decline and slide. How about that? Instead of decline and fall. We don't want to feel scared about it. You know, the Roman Empire didn't, decline in a day. It wasn't built in a day, it didn't decline in a day. And while it was declining, a lot of Roman citizens probably didn't even notice it was happening. And then a few centuries later, they started calling themselves Italians. They're doing fine today. you know. <laughs> Besides, this could be the world's first intentional decline And in order to keep our currency afloat as we make the transition from superpower to ordinary nation, what do we do best here in the United States? Better than anybody else on the planet? Entertain. We are the most, everybody loves American entertainment. So as we announce that we are resigning as a superpower, we simultaneously invite the rest of the world to come and visit and witness this historic moment, the world's first intentional decline and, and we open up the entire country as a vast theme park <laughs> called Formerly Great America. <laughs> the downhill rides would be spectacular, wouldn't they? Oh, we laugh, we've got to laugh, you know, we've got to keep laughing. It is a critical moment, and on the surface, the problems we are facing are political, and they require engineering of our social systems and economic systems, but I think at the core, they are psychological and mythological and spiritual. The core of our problem is that we are lost in an extreme of individualism. We have lost what the anthropologists used to call participation mystique, a sense of being part of a larger community, being part of nature, being part of the cosmos. We have so emphasized uh, the self, the individual self, that now we're kind of lost in this, Sense of our identity being just this singular monad moving through the world, believing that we are in here and the world's out there, never sensing our, that we are the world, that we are part of the world, the world is flowing through us, all the rest of life is throwing, flowing through us, and that we are part of a larger community and that we are part of the living fabric of, of the earth. This is D.H. Lawrence. Our task in the coming era is to relocate ourselves in the cosmos and to renew our kinship with all of Earth life. It is time to join again in the dance drama of biological and cosmic evolution. In short, to regain some humility and find our life's meaning not in individual accomplishment, but in our shared existence. I think that's what we're doing in meditation. I think we're... We're gaining, perhaps, a a new experience of what it is to be I, me. As the Buddha instructed us, go in and see. Ask yourself, where did this come from? What is the origin of these experiences? Can I say they are I, me, mine? At one point in one of the suttas, he says, this body is not mine or anyone else's. It has arisen due to causes. And conditions. Darwin, right? I mean, Darwin be right. There's a, hey, Buddha, you, you got this two thousand five hundred years before I did. Joseph Campbell said we need a myth that will identify the individual not just with his or her own self, family, or group, but with the whole planet. So that brings me to Charles Darwin. I want to read just a little passage here from my book Buddha's Nature where I tried to introduce Darwin and the Buddha. The aim of all great spiritual traditions is to offer us relief from the dramas of self and history remind us that we are part of much grander projects than these. In that sense, I suggest that experience ourselves as part of biological evolution can be understood as a complete spiritual path. The fantastic story of evolving life and consciousness contains as many miracles as any Bible and as much majesty as any pantheon of divinities. The drama of earth life's creative expression and the puzzle of where it might be leading can fill us with enough suspense and wonder to last at least least a lifetime. And the idea that we are part of its unfolding can offer us meaning and purpose. Equally important, the difficulties, pain and death inherent in all life can teach us about the fundamental conditions of our own. And if the spiritual has something to do with humility, then the scale of nature from the uncountable number of cells in our brains to the vast number of galaxy clusters just now being discovered will certainly serve the purpose. To know ourselves as emerging from earth life doesn't in any way deny our divinity. It only seems to deny our exclusive divinity. The sacred is not alive just in us, but in every, but everywhere. Nature can serve as the text of our religion. The holy can be inscribed in the veins, can be seen inscribed in the veins of the leaves and in the vessels of our blood. Nature is the medium that nurtured our consciousness, as well as our imagination, and therefore is the mother of all our realities, even the realm of the gods. In some way, I think the Buddha, in in his beautiful mudra of touching the earth, when his last challenge from Mara before he became enlightened, Mara says, what right do you have to, to reach this stage of consciousness where you can really understand yourself, when you can... Take apart this phenomena of mind and body and understand yourself. What gives you the right? And the Buddha reaches down and touches the earth. The earth is his witness. I think of it as him touching the earth, saying, This is where where it all came from. Uh, The earth grew this body, the earth grew this consciousness. I see the four foundations of mindfulness the Buddha's prescribed path for us in the Maha Sutra, I see that, those four foundations of mindfulness as being an evolutionary journey. The Buddha has us bring our mindfulness to the body and breath, basic aliveness, to the experience of pleasant, unpleasant, the, the, the sort of basic... Uh, triggers of our behavior to our emotions and to our whole mechanism of thought and cognition it's a whole journey a whole evolutionary journey so let me quote from charles let's bring charles into the room The last paragraph of The Origin of Species, on The Origin of Species. There is a simple grandeur in this view of life, with its powers of growth, assimilation, and reproduction, being originally breathed into matter under one or a few forms, and while this our planet has gone circling on, according to fixed laws, And land and water in a cycle of changes have gone on replacing each other so that from so simple an origin, through the process of gradual selection of infinitesimal changes, endless forms, most beautiful and wonderful, have been evolved. Endless forms, so most beautiful and wonderful have been evolved. It's a phenomenal teaching to believe in evolution, if you could take it personally, if you could actually grok that it is what created you. As I said during the meditation, I think the main teaching of biological evolution is that you are not your fault. You did not choose these bodies. You did not choose these brains. You did not choose this moment of of Consciousness, this moment of the evolution of consciousness. It is a given. It is something that you are born into. The Buddha's great leap, the Buddha's brilliance was to see that we inherit these instincts, we inherit these impulses, these, these structures, this you know, these emotions. And if we, un- if we can step back and observe them with mindfulness, we can actually override them. We can have some freedom of choice in whether we allow our inherited condition to rule us. That was his brilliance, was that in the human condition, there is this possibility of freedom. Otherwise, we are complete slaves to evolution, to what we inherit. It's a, it's, a, it's an amazing, it was an amazing leap of consciousness that the Buddha took. And he talked about how, you know, you can't unravel your karma. It just is so, it goes off in so many directions that, you know, all the causes and conditions through cosmic and biological evolution that bring you to this moment of experience, it's just, it's unknowable. It's just you know, phenomenal numbers of causes and conditions. And Darwin started to unravel some of that karma and show us exactly that, you know, there was, uh, you know, these single-celled beings that started to merge and combine with each other and became multi-celled beings and started to grow appendages that could move them around and so they could survive more easily and 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 you know through these infinitesimal changes came to produce these beings so so this profusion of beings beautiful and wonderful by the way when darwin first uh came out with his theory theory. He kept it to himself for about 25 years until uh, somebody else was about to publish it and he, he decided to publish. He said publishing his understanding was like committing a murder. And it, indeed, it was. It was like murdering the great ego of humanity that we were somehow, came from somewhere else, were placed down here to rule the whole show. That we had nothing else, nothing to do with the rest of the life of this earth. And you know, I think that the Buddha also, his emphasis was to de-sentimentalize and demystify this life. Uh, After hearing... uh, of uh, Darwin's revelations 150 years ago in England. The wife of the Earl of Norwich is reported to have said, descended from apes? Let us hope it is not true, but if it is, let us pray that it will not become generally known. And in in recent times, you know, there's a complete revolution going on in in the field of evolutionary biology and um, revealing how closely related we are to everything that lives. They now uh, know that we share certain genes with all other, almost all other creatures. Hox genes are called uh, toolkit genes that will tell the cells to produce limbs at certain places in the body. And they can take those genes out of one species of life and put them into another, out of a fire of fruit fly and put them into a tadpole, and the, same, and the, the tadpole will grow tadpole limbs, you know, where the fruit fly was growing wings. Uh, and if you think about it, the floor plan of almost all creatures is the same. You've got a head on one end, an elongated body with limbs coming out at particular places and a you know, waste disposal system at the other end. The senses all up around the head. You know what your senses are for? The better to eat with, my dear. to see the food? To see what wants to make you food? hear it. I mean, does that is that, that's so unromantic about, you know, we're coming up on Valentine's Day. I don't want to, you know, really bring you down and make it all seem cold and biological, but it seems to be the case. But I don't think it diminishes us. Again, I really, I find it so liberating. Really liberating, And of course, we found out how closely related we are to all the other creatures in this world through the discovery of DNA itself. Composed a, a molecule composed of four chemical compounds, and depending on how they're arranged in these long strings of coded information, a DNA molecule will contribute to the growth of a sequoia, or a mouse, or a human being, or a rose. All life has this molecule. It separates life from non-life. You share, almost 100% of your DNA is exactly the same as the DNA of the person sitting next to you. Nearly 100%. I mean, it's just a itty bitty fraction. Most of the information for building and creating and maintaining you is the same as the information for building and creating me and the Dalai Lama and George Bush and <laughs> Mother Teresa and Paris Hilton. Our, our IQs and our personalities and our little you know variations in looks and eye color is just a thin coat of paint over the basic human design most. Of the information that builds and maintains you, it takes a lot of information to build and maintain this nervous system and this circulatory system and this structure. And I mean, there's a lot going on in here. A hundred trillion cells. Literally. Uh, life has gone from a single celled being to a being with a hundred trillion cells. That's you. We share nearly 98% of our DNA, over 98% with, our, with the chimpanzees, over 90% with mice, nearly 70% with worms, and nearly 50% with yeast. <laughs> Now, if you declare yourself divine, is not the slime also divine? And if not, where do you draw the line? Who gets a soul? See, I, the story of evolution does not deny our divinity. It just denies our exclusive divinity. It actually unites us with everything that lives and makes us part of this phenomena, this process, this project, this this glorious profusion of this mystery, it's really beautiful, beautiful. I'm making this file uh, of the causes and conditions for everything. (laughs) That's that's some humility. I should have some humility. But (laughs) I just find this uh, endlessly fascinating. We like flowers according to an article or a book. I I have stacks of evolutionary biology books. I just find it so interesting. We like flowers because uh, they announce that fruits, nuts, and tubers are growing. That's one person's theory. You can still give flowers to each other for Valentine's Day and say, oh, no, um, but. Well, our arms swing in opposition to the swinging of our legs because a few billion years ago, our ancestors with two pairs of fins wiggled over the mud by throwing their bodies in an S curve. And, you know, we can move our wrists almost uh, 360 degrees in our Arms also, mo- other mammals can't, except for our primate ancestors who swang from the trees and that's why we have so much mobility of our... <laughs> um, now this is an interesting one and, and this one I'm, I'm really trying to understand better. Uh, this is an evolutionary scientist uh, and uh, neuroscientist also, Antonio Damasio. He's actually an uh, uh, expert on, on emotions. He said, evolution has developed complex brains that create sensory and motor maps that represent the environment, the outside world, and the organism as it interacts with the, out, with the environment. The conversation among the maps tells the story of our organism responding to and being modified by the outside world. The story is first told without words, and then later with words, and it amounts to the creation of a basic sense of self. That the sense of self arises from the organism's brilliant adaptation to create these continually changing maps of what's going on and ourselves moving through the world, and that gives us a sense that we are selves. Which On some level, we certainly are. Anyway. So, I thought, as a treat, and then maybe we have time for a few questions and discussion, Uh, I thought I would read you this wonderful piece called Was the World Made for Man? It was written in 1903, when the debate over evolution was raging as, as hot or hotter than it is today. And it was written by Mark Twain and it was not published in his lifetime. Uh, much of his writing was not published in his lifetime because he would have been lynched had it been published. Some of his takes on Christianity and uh, Anyway, he is entering the debate here in this article. The debate. Was the world made for man? I seem to be the only scientist and theologian still remaining to be heard from on this important matter of whether the world was made for man or not. I feel it is time for me to speak. I stand almost with the others. They believe the world was made for man, and I believe it's likely that it was made for man. According to the latest figures, it took 99,968,000 years to prepare the world for man, impatient as the creator doubtless was to see him and admire him. But a large enterprise like this has to be conducted warily, painstakingly, logically. It was foreseen that man, once he arrived, would have to have the oyster. (laughs) Therefore, the first preparation was made for the oyster. Very well. You cannot make an oyster out of whole cloth. You must make the oyster's ancestors first. This is not done in a day. You must make a vast variety of invertebrates to start with, trilobites, jebusites, and that sort of critter. Put them to soak in a primary sea and wait and see what will happen. Some will be a disappointment. They will die out and become extinct in the course of the 19 million years covered by the experiment, but all is not lost for the Amalekites. We'll develop gradually into encranites in one thing and another as the mighty ages creep on in the Archaean and Cambrian periods pile their lofty crags in the primordial seas, and at last the first stage in the preparation of the world for man stands complete, the oyster is done. Now, an oyster has hardly any more reasoning power than a scientist has, and so it's reasonably certain, reasonably certain that this one jumped to the conclusion that the 19 million years was a preparation for him. But that would be just like an oyster, which is the most conceited animal there is except for man. Anyway, this oyster could not know at that early date that he was only an incident in a scheme and there was more to the scheme yet. The oyster being achieved, the next thing to be arranged for in the preparation of the world for man was fish and coal to fry it with. So the old cerulean seas were opened up to breed the fish in and one does not build coal beds in a brief time. No, it took 20 million years. In the first place, a coal bed is a slow and troublesome and tiresome thing to construct You have to grow prodigious forests, of tree ferns and reeds and calamites and such things in a marshy region. Then you have to sink them out of sight and let them rot. Then you have to turn the streams on them so as to bury them under several feet of sediment. Then the sediment must have time to harden and turn to rock. Next you grow another forest on top, then sink it and put on another layer of sediment, harden it, then more forest, more rock, layer upon layer, three miles deep. It's a sickeningly slow job to build a coal field and do it right. The Paleozoic time limit, now having been reached, it was necessary to begin the next stage in the preparation of the world for man by opening up the Mesozoic era and instituting some reptiles. For man would need reptiles, not to eat, but to develop himself from. This being the most important detail of the scheme, a spacious liberality of time was set apart for it 30 million years, and what wonders followed. Those stupendous saurians that used to prowl about the steamy world in those remote ages with their snaky heads reared 40 feet in the air and 60 feet of body and tail racing and thrashing after. It took 30 million years and 20 million reptiles to get one that would stick long enough to develop into something else and let the scheme proceed to the next step. The pterodactyl burst upon the world in all his impressive solemnity and grandeur. It may be that the pterodactyl thought the 30 million years had been intended as a preparation for himself, (laughs) for there was nothing too foolish for a pterodactyl to imagine, but he was in error. The preparation was for man. From this time onward for nearly another 30 million years, the preparation moved briskly. From the pterodactyl was developed the bird, from the bird the kangaroo, from the kangaroo the other marsupials, from these the mastodon, the giant cloth, the Irish elk, and all that crowd that you made useful and instructive fossils out of, Then came the first great ice sheet. And they all retreated before it and crossed over the bridge at Bering Strait and wandered around over Europe and Asia and died. All except a few to carry on the preparation with. Six glacial periods with two million years between chased these poor orphans up and down and about the earth from weather to weather, from tropic swelter at the poles to arctic frost at the equator and back again and to and fro. They never knowing what kind of weather was going to turn up next, and if they ever settled down anywhere, the whole continent suddenly sank under them without the least notice, they had to trade places with the fishes and scramble off to where the seas had been and scarcely a dry rag on them, and when there was nothing else doing, a volcano would let go and fire them out from wherever they had located. They led this unsettled, irritating life for 25 million years, always wondering what it was all for. Never suspecting, of course, that it was a preparation for man it had to be done just so or it wouldn't be any proper and harmonious place for him when he arrived. Then at last came the monkey, and anyone could see that man wasn't far off now. And in truth, that was so. The monkey went on developing for close upon five million years and then turned, to all appearances, into a man. Such is the history of it. Man has been here 32,000 years. That it took 100 million years to prepare the world for him is proof that that's what it was all for, I suppose. I don't know. If the Eiffel Tower were now representing the world's age, the skin of paint on the pinnacle knob at its summit would represent man's share of that age, and anyone would perceive that that skin of paint was what the tower was built for. I reckon. I don't know. (laughs) The wonderful, wonderful Mark Twain, was the world made for man. So, any uh, discussion, any questions, any comments about anything? How many of you here believe that evolution Yeah, you wish it had happened, yes. <laughs> it's happening, yes. Very good point. It is happening. This is a, I, I love this quote from a geologist. Colin Tudge is his name. He's written some wonderful books. Uh, i trying to remember the name of the book this comes from. It's... He writes, I suggest that once you become aware of the idea of evolution, once you begin to feel that things change through time, then your perception of everything around you is enhanced. Another dimension is added to your view of the world and that is the fourth dimension, time. You begin to perceive that an animal or a plant and the lineage to which it belongs and the planet itself are like a flame, not so much a thing as a performance, always becoming something else. And that each of us and our species as a whole are part of the overall unfolding. And I think that, um, and and this has been something that's been growing with me over the last 10, 15 years, 20 years, is that the Buddha Dharma and the practice of meditation can really bring the understanding, the knowledge of, of evolution, and turn it into wisdom, it can, we can really begin to use the practices uh, that the Buddha taught as a way of experiencing ourselves as a member of a species, as uh, a, a live being, uh, you know, uh, one of the live ones. You know, which which immediately puts us in a in a whole new category, a whole new sangha, if you will. Um, And so, I today I really I really uh, honor Charles Darwin because you know uh, what the Buddha taught is really to know yourself, to investigate yourself, to to understand. Who you are, and Darwin lifted the veil a lot. Anybody? Yes? So I I really like your your economic theory about attraction, and I'm wondering if you sent your comments to the economic (laughs) advisor. Well, if I had. Obviously they weren't listening you know they're 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 trying to stimulate the you know the shock it back to life the the consumption consumption economy i it does it has given me a new uh pickup line though <laughs> hey girl, you want to come up and see my stimulus package <laughs> all right, all right <laughs> come on, we can you know. It's I know it's Berkeley and you know I I love that um mm-hmm. vision of Buddha under the Bodhi tree and putting his hand to the earth and saying, I belong here and uh that's help that helps me daily, I think, of that actually. Mm-hmm. That you belong here. Yes, mm-hmm. because Mm-hmm. I just feel kind of strange, mm-hmm. you know, and then I just go, no, I do belong here. It's mm-hmm. just, you know, I, it's my mind that's telling me I don't belong here. Right. And all of a sudden, I'm able to drop into my heart and go, oh, yeah, I feel the warmth and the compassion and the belonging and It's, um, it's not that everything has to come in a certain package passage. Right, you feel, you feel like you belong. Mm-hmm. Like actually, go out and sometimes I have to go out and touch the dirt. <laughs> uhhuh. You can touch the trees. Yes, that do. But I love the idea that we're all element, also. We are fire, yeah. you know, rock, mineral. we are um, water, and we're air. Right. I think of the process as coming down from the psychological into the biological identity. That we, we are, have so learned to live in, in the story of our lives, the particular story of our lives, and not in the common story of our lives. And that's in our biology and not in our psychology. What's next? Oh, evolutionarily, (laughs) well, if we make it, I don't know. Um, Nobody knows, you know. A lot of it depends on what uh, nature wants, because nature kind of selects who's going to, who's going to, what kind of appendages are going to grow. And I have this uh, kind of whacked-out vision of, of some future generations being born with mindfulness. And they'll look back at us as we now look back at the apes, you know, and they'll say, oh, they had to twist their legs in, into these positions, and they struggled to get a moment or two of like, and, and they'll just come with this Maha consciousness, you know. It'll be just built in. Yeah. Uh huh. Well, I, isn't it the same question as you know? Does life have a purpose? Does does being alive have a purpose? Um, I don't know. We're the we're, you know, we're the ones who sort of bring the question of purpose to the world. Maybe it doesn't. Maybe it. I don't know that we can know, or at least at our level of consciousness, it seems that we can't figure it out. It seems to grow in complexity. Life, it seems to grow in complexity and self-awareness. Whether that's, you know, leading to some glorious, you know, city on the hill. Or if it's just a, a process of adaptation that will serve its purpose and either disappear or morph into something else. I, I don't know. Yeah, you have an answer back there. I can tell <laughs> with you. You're excited about this one. OK. Yeah, that is definitely one way to look at it. But wait a second. Now, so you're 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 saying that your purpose is to get off the wheel in order to escape further birth. I don't know if that's true. Oh, okay. Uhhuh. Okay, so in the midst of suffering, uh-huh. Beautiful. I have I connection with uh oneness. So so I I have sensed that or you the uh consciousness is why we're here. Very well could be. Woody Allen says that uh people who have achieved oneness can now move on to 2 Thank you for that. Okay, I think we're gonna, okay, one more, yeah. Uh-huh. I think it's apples and oranges. Let me close with a poem. <laughs> Did you, do you know uh, th- what I'm saying is that, that adding more cells and adding more consumption is not, I think it's they're different categories of things. Let me just close with a poem, and we'll, we'll just sit for a moment to collect ourselves before we leave. This is uh, Gary Snyder. Old Wood Rats, Stinky House. Coyote, and earthmaker whirling about in the world winds, found a meadowlark nest floating and drifting and stretched it to cover the waters and made us an earth. Us critters hanging out together something like two billion years, Ice ages come 150 million years apart, last about 10 million, then warmer days return. A venerable desert wood rat nest of twigs and shreds is a family house in use 8,000 years. And 4,000 years of written language equals the life of a bristlecone pine. A spoken language works for five centuries or so, lifespan of a Douglas fir. Big floods, big fires every couple hundred years. The human life lasts 80, a generation 20. Hot summers every eight or 10, four seasons every year. 28 days for the moon, day and night, the 24 hours. A song might last four minutes, and a breath is a breath. Coyote says, You people should stay put here. Learn your place. Do good things. Me, I'm traveling on. Remember that you are perfectly human. Thank you all for being here tonight. Happy birthday to Charlie. Uh, Books and CDs and things back there. If you you want me to sign them, I'll be happy to do so. And I'll see you on the path somewhere. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.